Okay. Um, well, let me try to figure out why I have no sound. Okay, I'm going to quit Skype and restart it. Call me back in afterwards. Okay. Sucker. We'll never call him back in. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Coming at you live from the German fortress of Bettendorf, Iowa. You know, you say coming at you live every week, and it's always time delayed. I mean, that's that's a podcast, right? <laughs> at least it's not coming at you dead from the zombie apocalypse or something. I'm Brains. live right now, okay? And I'm in a town called Bettendorf that sounds like it should be in Germany, but it's in Iowa. <laughs> okay. Uh, J- we also have Jameson Dance. Hi, guys. I'm just in Utah still. Utah. Woohoo! Uh, we have Joe Eames. Coming at you, I guess, live from a closet at Domo. Sweet. What are you doing in the closet, Joe? <laughs> I'm not getting baited by that. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, so we were discussing what we were going to talk about this week because I've been a little bit of a slacker and haven't had the time to. So I guess I'm not a slacker. I've been too busy, but I, I haven't had a chance to plan out episodes for the next few weeks. So we were talking and. Uh, Jameson mentioned that we could talk about the community and I said, yeah, the community kind of confuses me. And I think I got uh, an in-chat chuckle from that. And then um, anyway, so I thought, you know, let, let, let's talk about it. Let's let's see if we can make sense of this thing, because it seems like there are, from what I can tell, like different there are there are almost like different opinions or opinions, not opinions, communities out there. It's it's, it's kind of fragmented. You have like the people that um, follow everything that uh, Douglas Crockford says, and then you have the other people that follow everything that uh, Brendan Ike says, and you have the other people who agree with somebody else, and and then some people are talking about Node, and some people are talking about the browser, and even within the browser, some people are talking about jQuery, and some people are talking about anything but jQuery. A- am I am I reading this wrong? Is it is it really kind of that messy, or am I, I, I missing something? You summed it up pretty well, and I think that's part of what makes JavaScript really exciting. Part of that comes from the fact that it's so large. You have these people that have been doing JavaScript since '95. Um, and you also have lots of people who are very new to it. And some of them are really new to programming as well and are kind of just getting started. But you also have people, um, Node brought over a lot of people from other language communities who are bringing in good ideas from other platforms to, to JavaScript. So it all kind of just like, yeah, very true. <laughs> but it's, it's so large and there's so much churn in it, I guess, that there's always something exciting going on. Um, and I think we always praise NPM and how awesome it is. And that's like a direct result from people coming in from other languages that have solved package management in different and, and harder to use and develop four ways. So there's lots of benefit, I think, to, to having this wide variety of experiences. And is there, cool. is, is there truly a more ubiquitous language than JavaScript? I mean, it's it's so cross discipline, cross, you know, community. It's like it doesn't it, it's just barely getting to have its own community because so many people that are in the JavaScript community are really in another community. You know, they're in the Java community or 
or they're uh, designers or something. Yeah, exactly. So they're already from their own community, and then they come into this, start doing more and more and more JavaScript and getting more and more involved in JavaScript. And so it's like, it's just this crazy amalgamation of people. I think that's why there are so many just like cool mad science projects. Like I saw the other day that Firefox has, or Mozilla, I guess, has taken the this 3D game engine, like Sour Broughton 2 or something. I guess it's used for a couple of open source 3D first person shooters and they have it running inside the browser so they can benchmark WebGL and, and their JavaScript engine for running 3D games. There's also this group of people who are doing lots of robotics with JavaScript. I think Rick Waldron is, I don't know if he's the head guy, but he's definitely involved in that. He's given some talks on it. So there's like the robots.js people that have figured out how to communicate on like serial cables to their Arduino robots and stuff. I don't know. There's just like what other language can, can a designer who knows very little programming make a little button move? And you can also have some guy doing like statistical processing of huge tons of information just seems really cool did you say make a little button move or make a little butt move (laughs) uh depends on the designer i i must be ill i'm i'm not thinking straight sorry (laughs) yeah that makes sense but at the same time i mean you know since you have so many different things going on i mean how do you know which ones are most relevant to what you're doing so, for example, I mean, when I was really new to JavaScript, and by really new, I'd been programming in it a couple of years, but it really only scratched the surface of what jQuery gave you. Um, you know, I, I didn't know anything about any of these guys, and I didn't know, you know, why the different opinions were, were so important to people. Um, oh, go ahead, Joe. Rephrase the question. Yeah, rephrase the question. So, so basically, it, it's, you know, so how do I figure out essentially who's right or who's right for me to to be paying attention to i mean should everybody be paying attention to crockford or are there certain people that you know should become involved in a different part of the community i don't think everybody should pay attention to one person because if you do then you know now you're uh, one thing that's just great about as we were talking about javascript is that there's so many wide you know disciplines coming in and bringing in their influence into javascript and so you don't want it to become uniform. It needs to stay heterogeneous. Right. I think everybody should at least watch the eight videos that Crockford has. I mean, whether or not you subscribe to his religion or not, you should at least <laughs> at least watch it because there's a lot of valuable information there. Same thing with the jQuery guy. You should at least get on his blog and go through some of the most popular posts that he's got because there's some really valuable information there. You talking about John things, Rezig? Yeah, mm-hmm, John Rezig. Sorry, shouldn't have just called him the jQuery guy like that. That's just <laughs> Then you have to call Crockford the JavaScript guy, right? The, the Yahoo ECMAScript guy. The who who guy. went to PayPal, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. I didn't hear that yet. Yeah, he went a couple uh, months ago. Um, I also think, I mean, I'm like sort of tangentially part of a, uh, the Ruby community. I, Ruby was one of the languages I used when I was getting started. And it seems like they're a lot more unified, um, both for better and for worse. So... Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe Chuck, you could you could compare and contrast them because you're much more involved in Ruby than I am. But yeah, it, it seems like people are interested in a lot of the same things. And like right now, there's this big focus on software engineering and object oriented stuff going on in the Ruby community, where JavaScript is just kind of way more diverse. And and I don't know, it, you don't get a sense that there's one thing that people are really into right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is and it isn't. I think every community has, you know, the little groups out there that are doing their own thing and, and exploring areas that are, you know, a little bit different from sort of the mainstream in whatever, you know, language or community that's out there. And Ruby definitely has those, but it seems like at RubyConf and at RailsConf, um, you know, you, you do tend to get more of a homogenous uh, message from the different talks that you attend. Um, people tend to care about the same things. And a, a lot of it uh, does kind of um, center around, you know, good coding practices and things like that um, more than certain idioms of the language or, um, you know, a certain style or whatever. Everybody seems to adopt the same sort of coding style. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things that really threw me off with the JavaScript community was just that, you know, I come in and it's like in Ruby, if you come in, you know, you can kind of get an idea of, of who, who the innovators are out in the space and, and what they're up to. And, you know, and then you can figure out who's doing the stuff that you're really interested in. And in JavaScript, it just felt way more fragmented. And there's a lot more noise out there that you have to sort through before you can kind of figure out where you have to live and, and what's really going on that's important or interesting to you. So, Well, I, I see that as a plus because it's not that there's more noise. It's that there's more stuff happening. Like right. within one language, you have really... Um, I guess not innovative. People are going to yell at me and tell me event-driven programming on the server has been around for forever. But uh, a really innovative, easy way to do event-driven programming in Node and all these other cool things that it brings, like streams and, and just sweet stuff like that, but also really advanced front-end stuff. So I think it's cool to be able to sit in one language and do so many different things because I, I I get bored if I stay doing one thing for forever. Like if I was just a front-end guy, I would get pretty bored. So that's that's a positive thing for me. Yeah, I can see that. At the same time, though, I mean, I think if people who are new to, to the community can kind of get lost, it's it's not as, um, not everything's as available to them, I don't think. You're saying it's not as cohesive. Like if you, if yeah. you just want to learn how to do front end stuff, you don't really know where to turn when you're first starting out? No. So, for example, if you, if you come into Ruby, you know, everybody kind of pushes you down the same track. You know, here are some of the things that you need to look at. Here are some of the the ways that you get involved, you know, here are some of the things that pretty much everybody has tried that, that you ought to look at. And in JavaScript, since everybody's working on such disparate pro projects, you know, it's like, well, that all depends. Do you want to use Node? Do you want to work in the browser? Do you, you know, do you care about jQuery? Do you not? Do you, you know, are, are you looking for more code organization stuff? Are you looking for, you know, frameworks that get this stuff out of your way? And anyway, it's just, you know, there's, there's not a clear path, which, you know, is, is definitely both a good thing and a bad thing, but I almost feel like you need somebody who understands sort of where you want to be at, and then they can kind of point you in the right direction, as opposed to in Ruby, you start looking and you, you tend to get referred to the same places to get started. So yeah. I have an interesting question about Ruby, Chuck. Um, I heard that as a whole, the Ruby community has kind of moved away from act, active record. Is that true? Um... I think it really depends. I still use it in Rails. Um, it's just, uh, there are a lot of people out there, though, that like some of the other ones. And um, if you're doing NoSQL, obviously, you can't use Active Records. So you have to use something else. But um, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people just go with what the default is in Rails. Um, so not to, I didn't mean to uh, sideline the conversation or, you know, shoot off on a tangent here. I was just kind of trying to compare in my mind, you know, what you were saying about the Ruby community to JavaScript. Because... 
like in JavaScript, you know, there's no clear winner on not only within the MV star frameworks, but should you be using an MV star framework? Right. And so I was just kind of wondering, you know, is Ruby the community as a whole? Does it move from, you know, things that become are popular now and then they become passe as people realize, oh, that's not as good of an idea. I mean, I know that in other languages, they consider an active record pattern to be not as uh, effective as like a repository pattern. So uh, I just, you know, kind of maybe it's maybe the communities aren't quite as uh, fractured as uh, or, you know, as different Ruby versus JavaScript as you think. Because if if it's like that in, in Ruby that, hey, we can all still use Rails or use active record in Rails, then in JavaScript, you know, it's kind of, isn't it the same thing? We got these groups that are doing different things, and yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think mostly, um, you know, there are different people out there doing different things. Um, it, it just seems like when you get started, though, you you get sent down the same path to, as everybody else to kind of get to learn it. The other thing, though, is that when I started getting involved in the Ruby community in earnest, I, I started going to the conferences and I haven't really been able to go to any JavaScript conferences yet. Right. And so, you know, that might change my, my view on the, the community a little bit, just because I get to actually go and interact with JavaScript developers and, and really kind of get a feel for, you know, the, the kinds of things that they're talking about when you get a few hundred of them together. Right. I think that one of the things that sets aside the, a part of the JavaScript community is the fact that it's moving from unsophisticated to sophisticated solutions. And so the community, it just reacts in a funny way to that, where in other languages, you're, you kind of start off building sophisticated solutions right from the get-go. In JavaScript, we've been building all these unsophisticated solutions for so long, it's like, oh, I just want to make, you know, the button flash. I want, you know, I want scrolling text. And nowadays we're trying to write entire applications across both the client and server in one language. And so the solutions are getting really sophisticated as a community. People are reacting to that pressure in many different ways and bringing what they have in their, you know, former communities over and trying to figure out how to solve these problems. Yeah, I think that's what I think that was what really kind of got me interested in JavaScript was that it's like, okay, look, you know, there are all of these interesting and, and amazing things that are moving forward and kind of advancing the art um, in JavaScript that, you know, before it was just, uh, you know, these, these you know, you'd put a little script tag in with a couple of lines that, yeah, you, you'd put a click handler in there and that was about it, you know. Well, one of the things that I, I love and I think I love about the JavaScript community more than the other communities that I've been involved in pretty, you know, I was involved in the .NET community fairly heavily, is I think the JavaScript community is just more exciting. And um, I think I've I've said this to many other people, I may not have said this on the show, but JavaScript's the most exciting language to be working. It's the wild, you know, it's the wild west, this is the frontier, this is so many things are being pioneered right now in JavaScript. And it's just- Don't you mean more. the wild, wild west? Exactly. <laughs> then you have to start rapping. You know, well, I, we I, are I, all in the wild, wild west right now, except for AJ, who's in the wild, wild he's Midwest. In the boring, boring corn. Midwest. I, I, that was I a less somebody, successful rap song. I heard somebody once say that computer science and astronomy are the only two um, sciences anymore that an amateur can make a significant landscape-changing contribution to. And oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. You know, all these all, we got. Um, everybody listening to this podcast and everybody out there programming and banging away on JavaScript, you know, some of these people are going to come up with stuff that's just going to change the landscape of how we do stuff. And it's a guy in his garage can uh, make a change where, you know, in civil engineering, nobody in their garage is going to change how we do civil engineering. It's great. Right. 
or in finance, you know. Maybe with three D printers. I don't know. Oh, that does sound very promising. <laughs> um, so I was just playing the Mozilla demo. It's called Banana Bread. Instead of listening for a couple minutes, and it's really amazing. You guys should check it out. Also, what Joe was saying about the community being exciting. I was talking with an iOS developer that we have here, and he's a fantastic developer. Um, and he's done a little bit of JavaScript, and he said that it's so much more dynamic. Like, iOS has this thing called CocoaPods, which is basically like a proto-package manager in a really primitive state, and it's just barely getting started. And, and there's not as much community involvement or community projects because people just kind of use what Apple gives them. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with Joe that there's, there's tons of people just working on cool stuff, and that's why it's so exciting. Yeah, I have to ask, Joe, um, you've been involved in the .NET community. Um, is part of the reason that the, the communities are different because it is kind of a, a corporate-centered or corporate-driven um, product with .NET and um, Visual Studio? Uh, does that change the landscape a lot, or is it really the developers that are part of the community? Um, that's a good question. I really do think that it has that the Microsoft community is dominated by the Microsoft-centric view and Um, People that are really active in the Microsoft community are definitely a little bit more forward thinking, but the community at large, I think, suffers from Microsoft solved this. I don't need to worry about solving it myself. Right. And that's it suffers so heavily. Or Microsoft didn't solve this. It must not need to be solved. (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely seen less of that, um, but certainly there's got to be some of that, too. But as a great example, as I've many, many, many times said, TFS is a whole suite that does like four different things and it does them all just okay. And so everybody's like, well, Microsoft produced this product. Let's just use that rather than. You know, let's use a different source control, like let's use Git instead of TFS and let's use a different CI system. And, you know, let's pick the best of breeds. We're all picking just the one that's okay, and we're not solving. So it's hard, you know, to tie things together. Nobody's out there. Hey, I solved the the using Git, you know, on Windows long ago, which they they have solved that. People finally have solved that and using Git well and using Git with TFS is still painful they don't solve these problems because they feel like Microsoft solved this for us. And so they're not, I don't think that the community by and large is thinking for themselves as far as I'm going to go out and solve a problem that exists and I'm going to make it open source when I publish it. And that whole open source mindset, I really laud Microsoft recently for going far more open source. You know, they created the sub corporation that's um, doing just open source and their whole uh, charter is to make Microsoft products integrate well with open source products. I think that's a great, great thing for them to do, not just for their profit margins, but also for the community as a whole, because Microsoft does make good products. They do. They also make crappy products. And so community members in the Microsoft community aren't thinking, I'm not happy with this. I'm going to go and solve it my own. And in the JavaScript community, man, it's fantastic like that. I like this way that this guy solved it, but he didn't do it well enough. I'm going to do it better. Yeah, it seems it's like- also kind of a curse, too. I mean, there are like 30 bajillion different testing frameworks out right now, and none of them have won. Yeah, but... So you do get a lot of duplication of effort, but... Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, um, just to give you an example from the, the Ruby community, I mean, we have test unit, and then we have um, RSpec, and somebody else came out and wrote Minitest, which was kind of a newer, faster, cooler version of, of test unit. And, you know, they basically have built um, shims over the top of it so you can make your mini test stuff look like RSpec. 
and some of the areas that RSpec has innovated in have trickled over into the other testing libraries. So having that wide breadth isn't necessarily a, a problem. I mean, sometimes it would be nice if you could get more of a concerted effort on something that really just rocked. But uh, at the same time, you know, all these different people are in innovating in their own way and, you know, finding different things that just really, you know, kick butt or awesome. And, and then the other testing frameworks will pick them up and, and use them and run with them. And, and then you wind up with something that, that's a little bit better that may not have happened if, if all five or six guys that were working on separate things went off and did their own thing. One other thing I want to point out with what Joe was saying, where people go out and kind of solve their own problem, is that uh, you you really do get that. Uh, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. It, it, it's really exciting, though. It seems like it happens in the newer communities where, you know, the, th the things aren't well established necessarily. And as much as we talk about JavaScript being an old and established community that's been around for 20 years, at the same time, I mean, the landscape of what we're dealing with in JavaScript has changed a lot. And in a lot of ways, it's more like a new community than an old one, especially with the Node.js and the way that it's come up. Um, you know, the, the stuff that you can do with it and the fact that it runs on the server has brought people in from other communities. And it's, it's not the old 20-year-old JavaScript community. It's the new, we're working on something cool that runs on the server uh, JavaScript community. And so they are innovating in a lot of ways and, and moving very quickly with it, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. AJ says that it's a community of amateurs a lot. And I think that also kind of sums it up well that even though it's been around for a long time, there's lots of um, fresh stuff happening. I don't know. Right. Well, the thing is, is, you know, the, the JavaScript community with things like Backbone.js and Ember.js and all of these different MVC frameworks, you know, that kind of take advantage of some of the things that jQuery has given us. I mean, it, it's a new world out there for JavaScript. And as many people as are out there um, writing, you know, the little script tags with four or five lines in it like they did in the 90s to, uh, to animate something or, or move something or put a click handler in there. Um, you know, nowadays we are, we're seeing, we're seeing a community of people who are writing whole applications in JavaScript. And we've said this before, but the, those kinds of things make it sort of a new community. And so they're solving new problems and, and moving quickly into new areas. And, and so I, I kind of, I see where people are saying that the language has been around for 20 years, but at the same time, it doesn't feel that way all the time. Yeah, because it's not until jQuery came around that I think people really started to become invested in the language. You know, yeah. that's where it started a transition from a community of amateurs, people that were not willing to actually learn and to invest in JavaScript to starting to get some people that wanted to design things in JavaScript rather than just throw some crap together. Right. And yeah. then Node has definitely taken that a huge step further because it brought in smart people, like people from Ruby oh, that geez. had been invested in the language, you know? There and were people, already smart people still, though. Well, yeah, but it brought in a lot of them. You know, like like jQuery didn't bring in like a lot of new smart people from other languages or other backgrounds. Node brought in people that primarily worked in C, that primarily worked with virtual machines, that primarily worked with Ruby, you know? Like NPM is the result of looking at all the faults that Jim has had to go through as it's evolved and then solving all of them from the get-go and then solving a few new ones that were found out along the way. 
Well, I'm not sure that I agree that if, you know, say two years ago, you were primarily working in C, that that's evidence that you're really smart. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I, I, mean, I think the quality of people that have come into JavaScript has, like, JavaScript has benefited probably more by Node than by by just as much as, as HTML5. Hmm, like, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see um, how many people have come in over the last... 10 or so years and really invested in JavaScript due to Node versus, you know, other tech, other technology that's part of the JavaScript uh, ecosystem. Well, I guess we'll see some flames in the comments where people are like, AJ, you're an idiot. Bah, 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 and then we'll know. Yeah, I, I, I think I think part of what really drew people to Node was just that it provided an innovative way of solving the same problems that we've been solving for, for a long time. Because most of the systems out there that you use on the server are primarily procedural systems. I mean, even if you're looking at something like Rails where, you know, you have the MVC and all that stuff going on. I mean, when it comes right down to it, it works through the system in a procedural manner. And this is more event driven. And it, it's really an interesting way of tackling some of these problems that don't seem to fit well into the procedural area. And so I think what really happened was people saw it, they started uh, experimenting with it to solve their problems and realized that it actually had a place in their ecosystem and infrastructure to build out what they needed to build. And so then people starting it, started investing in it because they wanted more power from it. They wanted to be able to do more things with it and solve the other problems that lend themselves well to it. And so I think that's how Node kind of grew into um, a first-class citizen in the server space. I think Node is a funny, a funny cat because it just seems like such a mismatch. But I, I agree with you in some cases, Chuck, but I'd say it's possibly, I would think the reason's a little bit different. But the reason that Node has benefited us so much is because Node bringing JavaScript to the server side all of a sudden made a whole bunch of people that were really smart prick their ears up and say, really? That sounds really cool. And and the people that go to um, are interested in new, exciting technologies, I mean, I wouldn't say they're smarter than people that aren't, but they just more have more time community oriented. I was going to say they just have more time than I do. More time. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're more community oriented. They're interested in solving problems, right? Yeah, like, yeah. hey, Node's doing something cool. I'm going to go check it out. And that makes me interested in, you know, I'm checking out Node for a problem I have here at my company. And, oh, I see Node has these other problems. So because I'm just that kind of person, I like to solve these problems. So I brought in Node and now I'm going to solve some problems in Node and publish some stuff. Yep. So I think it's just those kind of people that are drawn to something like Node that have really benefited the JavaScript community as a whole. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think similar things have happened in the, the, um, the web space due to things like jQuery and stuff just kind of giving you a common denominator to work from. I mean, I was, I was really excited by what JavaScript could do on the browser, and that's what converted me to JavaScript, not because in and of itself it seems like an amazing language, but because what I was allowed to do on the browser. But I think it's possible that a lot of people don't see the browser as being that exciting. Like, they're not as that, that excited about solving the user's problems, but they're a lot really, but the, if they're excited about solving a com corporate problem at their, at their company, then Node can get you excited about that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and a lot of what you said is is more or less what I was trying to say. So, you know, it, it's just interesting. And, and now that people are seeing it as part of their infrastructure, they're willing to invest in it. And so the JavaScript community has gone from 
a way of dealing with the deficiencies of HTML uh, in one way or another to an actual fully blown uh, part of your architecture of your system. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. Have you ever taught someone to program using JavaScript that didn't already know how to program? Because as JavaScript is more and more popular, it seems like people are coming to JavaScript as their first language more. But it's, I mean, it definitely has some quirks relative to other languages. But I wonder if you don't know anything about programming, does that even matter? Like maybe your, maybe lexical scoping is just, just makes sense to you because you don't know any other way or something. Well, I think I, I would not recommend that someone go into JavaScript unguided as their first language because of the community of amateurs thing. They're going to find W3 schools and they're going to be like, oh yeah, this has all the best <laughs> tutorials, you know? And, and things like that where they're going to end up finding that the most popular uh, solutions when they Google are going to be some of the worst implementations you could possibly decide on. So I would recommend some other language that's got, that has had a more structured community like Golang or Rails or Python where they do have some uh, agreement on what path you should take and what is idiomatic in that language. Because in JavaScript, like we were saying earlier, people just can't make up their minds on what's an idiomatic use of the language. And there's a lot of conflicting opinions. And worse, there's a lot of amateur opinions that just bear no relevance. So I kind of agree with you, AJ, to a definitely a certain point. Although for a related reason, and that is, um, I think that JavaScript lacks by and large across the community as a whole, a lot of engineering rigor that exists in other places because of that, you know, amateur view of the world uh, that we have, that it's, it's a large community of amateurs. And so coming to JavaScript first means you're not going to see much in the way of engineering discipline. Where if you go to one of the old, one of the stodgier languages uh, like Java or .NET, um, and I don't want to lump Rails in that group, but uh, Rails has a large, very engineering-oriented community, then that's good because that you know helps you be a better programmer, and that doesn't exist very, very much in the JavaScript world. So that's a good reason not to start with JavaScript. But um, I think it's a still an awesome language to learn as long as you can learn engineering discipline when you're going along. Like right. So if, if you have a guide, yeah, I, I think yeah, another I you have a guide. I think another thing that is I interesting in, when you're talking about this is that um, I, I think it's important for people to learn um, object oriented uh, things, and I, I think it's also important that they learn some of the other. Um, ways of tackling some of these different things like uh, maybe go learn a functional language or something. And so if, if you get into a highly uh, OO language um, like like Ruby and then go learn a functional language like Lisp or Scheme or Clojure or something, th then you can start to see, see what the trade-offs are and then you can kind of get a feel for um, the, the prototypal slash semi-functional slash screwed up object oriented nature of, of JavaScript. You know, you can see why it's different, where it's different and, and how to, how to deal with it, how to compensate for some of the deficiencies, um, that it has for certain problems and, and why those are strengths for other problems and, and really get a feel for it. But the fact that you have so many different ideas diluted into JavaScript, it makes it a really hard place to start. And so for that reason, I mean, I would take somebody through some of these other languages so that they really understand object orientation. 
then they really understand functional programming and then they get into JavaScript and they really kind of go, okay, well, you know, these parts are kind of like what you get out of Lisp and these parts are kind of like what you get out of one of these OO languages like Java or Ruby. And then, and then you can go, okay, so now I, now, now that I understand, you know, these other principles, then I can pick things apart and, and, and see why I want to use this piece here and that piece there. So and to counter my previous argument, there are two things that I think are exceptionally good about JavaScript. One is that on every computer, you don't need to install anything to begin using it because you've always got, you know, Firefox or Chrome or Safari. You'll hardly ever run into a computer that only has Internet Explorer. So you've got something that can run real JavaScript. And mm -hmm. then um, if you're doing networking like a chat server, there's nothing better to start with than Node because it makes networking so dirt simple. It just takes out all the confusion and the select and the you know, trying to understand how to manage the multiple connections. If you want to get into something that's networking, I think that uh, Node.js has got the best avenue of access because you're probably going to come across some good tutorials if that's what you're coming in through. Um, and it's just so simple. Whereas with Ruby, even building a chat server is a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I can see that, especially where, um, you know, you, you have things like in, in Ruby, for example, you have event machine, but it's just, yeah, it's not as simple. It's not as clean as doing it in node.js. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's an abstraction built on top of the language, whereas in node it's in the language like yeah. it's part of yeah well, part there, of what comes built in it looks like joe has to take off do you want to give us your picks real quick joe oh yeah cool um my two picks for this uh week are the penny arcade expo packs which is going on starting tomorrow and if you're hearing about it for the first time now it's far too late to be there but it's just an awesome gaming expo with consoles and pc the computer gaming and tabletop gaming and everything put on by the Penny Arcade guys. And then uh, my other pick is Will Wheaton, who I follow on Twitter, and he just does just cool stuff, talks about lots of cool stuff. His tabletop YouTube series is really fun. And those are my, my two picks. Awesome. All right, well, I don't know who Will Wheaton is, but he seems like some kind of like nerd god. So sad. And I don't you know. You don't know who Will Wheaton is? That's so sad. I just see he's he's too young. Why he's so oh my famous. Gosh. He must be too young. Star Trek's next generation. Oh. Is he that little Wesley Crusher? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's so sad, Jameson. But I, I mean, still don't know who he is. Everyone else on Star Trek isn't worshipped by by nerds all around the world. Why is he so worshipped? Lavar Burton has a pretty good following. Oh, yeah. that's true. Yeah, but um, he also has a reading rainbow going for him. Right. <laughs> who's Who's the the Asian guy that also appears on Psych at the Comic Con? So, uh, a Pinterest uh, account. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. He plays Hikaru Sulu, right? Yeah. In the original I, series. I don't know. Uh, George, uh, George Takei. Yeah. Yeah. That's he's awesome. Awesome. yeah, he is. He's really cool. His Pinterest is hilarious. Hmm. Yeah, he's he's definitely one of those interesting people to follow. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I, I kind of off and on like Will Wheaton. So yeah, it just depends. But anyway. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Joe. We'll we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks. So anyway, what what were we talking about before? We were kind of talking about learning JavaScript and and whether you should or shouldn't oh, do yeah. it as a first language or how how to help people out with it. One thing that's really awesome is the Khan Academy um, computer science stuff. That's all in in uh, JavaScript and it's all really interactive. So if you guys have watched that um, Khan Academy. 
Do you not know what Khan Academy is? Uh, no. Oh, well, now I get to make fun of you for not knowing what something is. It's this uh, online, it's it's not as structured as like Coursera or, or Udacity or these university ones, but it's just a bunch of, of online video tutorials for learning like math or science or something. Oh, okay. And it, the, the guy that started Salcom is pretty famous and has taken a lot of money from Bill Gates' charity foundation, I think, to, to get it up and running. Oh, okay. But he has a computer science section that is, um, the, the code is JavaScript, and then there's like a canvas on the other side, and you can kind of hover over variables and click and drag them to shrink and grow the little drawings that you're doing on the side. It's kind of like that inventing on principle talk that was out last year that kind of made the rounds. So it's, I mean, this is all JavaScript, right? Um, but it, it's done in a way that it makes it really immediate, the feedback on, on what you're doing. You can, you can see it right away. Um, and I think there are definitely environments like this in other languages, but that's one good thing about learning JavaScript is that you can do really visual things and, and get more feedback um, that can maybe excite people more. Okay. So I, I posted a link to this and you guys should all check it out if you haven't seen it yet. I was hoping that Khan Academy was related to Star Trek too. <laughs> well, maybe it's like the uh, six degrees of Star Trek or something. Everything's related <laughs> to Star Trek if you follow some chain. There you go. All right. Well, um, so so one thing that kind of came out that while we were talking that I wanted to ask about then was if you're getting into JavaScript and you want kind of that first um, that first project to kind of get get going in it is is the chat server kind of a good first step or is there something simpler maybe that you could try out or what? I, I think it depends on your background. If you know just zero about programming, then no. <laughs> uh, and if you know nothing at all about server side stuff. Or, or networking at all, it might be a little tough to, to just put it together on your own. There are some tutorials. I mean, it's kind of like the to-do app version on mm-hmm. for Node that there are just a bajillion tutorials for uh, for chat servers. So those might be good to follow along with. But I, I think, think that just- if you don't use anonymous functions and you use functions... Um, yeah, if you, if you get rid of anonymous functions and you're not too familiar with programming... I think the the Node.js chat server thing could be pretty simple, but most of the examples I've seen use anonymous functions, and I think that's a little bit confusing to follow when you're not even familiar with the concept of function yet. Right. But I I don't think nested functions is much harder to understand. That to me that seems very intuitive. It's just you know if you logically nest something, then it's going to get used where it's nested. I don't think that's too difficult, and I do think that if you don't know too much about networking then the JavaScript Node.js examples are easier to understand because it's just it's just like a coffee shop. I mean, you can go through the coffee shop um, analogy, that little article, and kind of explain it that way. And and then it makes a lot of sense. Whereas... Knows with, what you're talking about. The, the, your coffee shop doesn't use two-phase commits article. I'm pretty sure I've posted no, this I, before, I, but I find it. But there are hopefully other people listening to this besides me, and they might, know what, they might not know what you're talking about. Yeah, so if you Google... Uh, your coffee shop doesn't use two-phase commits, then you come up with this PDF, um, which is just a beautiful explanation of uh, event-based design and basically gives the example if you walk into Starbucks, you order your coffee, you sit down, then you get an event call back when your coffee's ready Mm -hmm. rather than you walk up to the register, you wait and wait and wait and wait in blocking fashion until your coffee is ready, then pay, then sit down. 
I don't drink coffee, but I have been to coffee shops that function in both ways. So anyway, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about on the browser? Is there kind of a generally accepted first application that you ought to build on your browser? Is it the to-do, to-do app or is, it, is that too complicated? That's like an MVC learning how to use yeah, it thing. That, that's kind of the way it struck me too. Are, are you talking about people that don't know JavaScript or don't know programming? Because JavaScript, don't know JavaScript. Because don't know programming, <laughs> you start with kind of the same kinds of things, the hello worlds and the, the basic variable manipulation and stuff like that. But if you, if you're trying to learn JavaScript in earnest and you say you're at least halfway decent in some other language? That is a good question. I don't really have an answer to that. It seems like you Crockford. want to... Yeah, but he's talking about a project, not a person to yeah. talk oh, stuff from. Right. I don't know. Maybe you could do some really basic just DOM manipulation stuff without jQuery. But right. Do something like a bingo game or something where you press yeah, a button and it, where you, where it brings up a number and then you click on the number to put a thing on it or something. Yeah, something that happens events somehow. It's something where you have to select DOM elements. Yeah. You know, it's really fun. Um, reinvent a game like catchphrase or one of those personality tests. Because then it's something that you get to share with someone else and they kind of immediately get it. If you do something like catchphrase, then you, you have a really fun time because you get to re-implement uh, th- or you get to implement things using the HTML5, like the audio API for the buzzer and you know do a ticker. And so something like catchphrase is really, really cool to do in JavaScript. And it's not complicated. You know, you just mm-hmm. have a word bank and then... You know, you press a button for team A, a button for team B, and then a button to start, stop, pause the buzzer. Right. That makes sense. Huh. All right. Well, um, I think we're just about out of time. It'd be really interesting to talk about like the code exercises kind of things that we're talking about now where it's, you know, what, what kind of apps do you build for practice or what kind of, um, you know, problems do you go out and find and solve? You know, do you do Conway's game of life or something else and, and, you know, kind of, you know, learn how to program or in some cases learn how to learn how to program. Hey, Jameson, did you do Conway's game of life? Uh, I did. I don't think I ever got it hooked up to canvas though. It, it took like, I mean, the game itself is like five lines of an if else statement. And that's pretty much it. Oh, wow. It's, I mean, it's just literally if these squares have these designs, then do this kind of thing. So it's not very hard. But I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should put it on some canvas dust, but I kind of abandoned that. That was the first thing I ever did in CoffeeScript, though. Cool. All right. Well, let's wrap this up and get some picks out. Um, AJ, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'll do that. First off, I got a, first of all, first off, I have a pro tip for you. If you're ever eating a banana, eat it like a monkey. Instead of trying to peel it from the top, if you just pinch the bottom, it'll split open. So when you get one of those bananas that's a little bit too green on the top and you're like yanking at it, yanking at it, yanking at it, and all you're really doing is like like mushing the banana. Instead, if you just take the bottom and pinch it, it'll split right away. <laughs> okay, I'm five years old. I just laughed when you said pinch the bottom. <laughs> Well, that's okay. You can do that. I, I was I was thinking about when you said eat it like a monkey. I'm like, what? Hold it with my foot. You could you could potentially do that if you have an opposable thumb on your foot. Yeah. I'm gonna get surgically altered so I can do that then. That's what they did in that uh, one movie. I don't remember the name of it. Aeon Flux. Yeah. It's like a wannabe Matrix. It wasn't really all that great. Anyway, it wasn't great. Yeah. Um, and then my other pick 
is a local pawn shop. Um, it's called Minuteman Pawn, and it's in Orem on State Street at about 900 South. And if you want any audio equipment, there's a guy named Alan there. Way cool guy. Um, knows a lot of stuff. I do a little DJing on the side, so I, I've gone there to buy stuff from him, and I go there a lot just to BS and you know, kind of keep the friendship going and whatnot. And then it's totally transformed since this new company bought it and rebranded it uh, like a year ago. And I just got a, a MacBook Pro from there as well. And I paid $1,068.50 for it. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. Should have haggled them down by 50 cents. Uh, I haggled them down by $500. So $500 and 50 cents. I know, Jameson, you totally got taken. <laughs> All right, uh, Jameson, your picks. Uh, my first one is Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Um, it's a version of this really old first-person shooter game called Counter-Strike, which came out in 1999. And uh, Valve just released a new version that's pretty similar, but it's, it's just like the purest, most, I don't know, doesn't have any gimmicks where you have to unlock stuff or, or it's just all about the gameplay. And it's it's really well made and it's pretty cheap. I think it's only $15. So I've been spending a lot of time with that. We've been playing it a lot at work and I've had a great time. Um, I said my first pick. I think that's my only pick. I didn't really run across too much other stuff this week. I started doing some freelancing, so I don't have too much time anymore. But yeah, so that's it. Awesome. Um, so I guess it's my turn for picks. Um, dang, I've, I've been so busy lately. I just haven't even had time to think about it. Um, pick AJ and I. Yeah, there we go. My favorite co-hosts. Woo-hoo. All right. Well, um, yeah, screw that Joe guy now that he left. Yeah. We can talk about him behind his back. So have I talked about OmniFocus yet? I think so. Okay. Um, let's see. What am I using these days? I could talk about what I use to back up my computer because I'm really happy with it. Um, one of them is Time Machine. And uh, the, the cool thing about Time Machine, it's built into the Mac. You don't actually have to do anything. I have an external drive sitting behind my computer um, that I ordered off of Amazon. I don't remember what brand it is. I don't think it really makes a huge difference. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it just backs up my computer every day. And I probably have about 30 days worth of backups on it. And so if I ever have to roll something back, I can, which is really what it's there for. And then I have an offsite backup with Mosey. That's M-O-Z-Y. Now I have to put a disclaimer out there. Um, I actually used to work for Mosey. This, this was back when the company had a soul. Um, Ouch. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> but anyway, um, I like I like the service. I know how it works. And I'm pretty confident in the, the fact that it can deliver for me. So um, that's what I used to back up my my uh, my machine, my work machine. And uh, yeah, and then if I if the machine gets stolen or my house burns down or something, I can just get another machine and restore everything off of Mosey. So um, I, I think that's kind of the best approach for most people is to kind of have a two tiered system, at least two tiers where one is a local backup and the other is a remote backup. Um, I also use Dropbox and stuff to kind of uh, store some of the stuff that I need to share between computers. But And so you can think of that as kind of a backup, but it's not the same thing. And uh, yeah. Have, have you looked at the Amazon Glacier thing that just came out a couple weeks ago? Uh-uh. Where it's 
really cheap for storing tons of data, but um, if you want to get more, there's some limit to how much you can get out a month. It's like a few gigabytes a month. So it's basically just for really long-term backup of tons and tons of data. Um, so, so if you have like a terabyte of photos or something, you can just put them all in Glacier and it'll be, I don't know, 20 bucks a year or something like that. Huh. I'll have to look at that. But then if you need to download them all and you do it all like as fast as possible, it's super expensive. So you kind of have to limit how fast you, you retrieve data from it. Right. That's interesting. I'll have to check that out. Anyway, so those are my picks. Um, and uh, I don't know that we have any announcements. So I, I did want to pick one other thing. Okay. Um, so because you're talking about backup, Western Digital just released recently a two terabyte, two and a half inch drive. Uh-huh. And that's pretty amazing because um, that that's pretty much a little bit beyond the theoretical limit of what people believed you could fit on a two and a half inch magnetic media and Seagate's supposed to be coming out with something that's heat and magnet based that's going to be able to exceed two terabytes but uh, two terabytes is kind of like you, you can't get any bigger on a two and a half um, so that's awesome probably won't see anything bigger than that for a couple of years yeah. um, until Seagate gets their stuff figured out and they say that might take a decade uh, from to, our to the uninitiated the two and a half inch are the ones that go in the laptops yeah and the ones that are like the passports or the, the ones you get right. at Walmart that are your, your carry with you backup yeah. device, whatever. Um, also, uh, Western digital drives, they fail just like any other drive, you know, all rotational media sucks, but Western digital has the easiest, simplest, pain-free way of getting your warranty return. You just type in the serial number online and you click send me a new drive. You back up your old drive or do whatever, then you send in your 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 um, your old drive. If you don't send in your old drive, then you get charged like a buttload of money because they'll charge you above retail price for their drive. But you have 30 days to send back your old drive. Oh, um, nice. And I think you have 120 days to send it in actually, but then they charge you like a $20 restocking fee or like, like you sent it in too late fee kind of thing. Right. But I, I just love Western Digital because I buy a lot of their drives and whenever they fail, I send them in and they give me one and they don't they don't hassle me. I don't have to run like disk diagnostics and have to like boot into Windows and all that stuff. They trust me. If I say the drive's failed and it has bad sectors, I check the box bad sectors, I click send me a new one, they do it. Love it. Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap this show up. Um, thank our listeners for listening. We'll catch you all next week. Adios. See ya.